So this morning we're continuing in a series that we've begun on the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is probably in his most concise uh, speech explaining what he means by the kingdom and the kingdom life. And before we jump back into this, we start with the Beatitudes and that's appropriate today because there's a pretty large section of this church that's just a little tender today. Um, with the death of Steve Eldridge that came so suddenly. There was no, and we deal with death and it's tender always, but there was just no warning for this. And so uh, it was pretty amazing up at the hospital. There was a group of people that uh, with the family, with the Eldridge family, just that had gathered and handled this. I mean, we can't handle this, but they were handling this with kingdom things, just literally ushering, ushering Steve uh, from this life to the next with song and prayer and hugs and community. And I'm just so grateful for what Jesus gives us at times like this. And I don't know how anybody gets through anything like this without the kingdom. And it's when we face death, I really believe it's when we face death, we find out if this whole gospel thing works. And the reality is, if it doesn't work there, it doesn't work. We're pretending. And I just stand as a witness of so many of you, not just the Eldridges and and all of you that have been touched by this. Um, And in my life, that it works. This works. We We are talking about something that matters, but more than that, in a way, it works. It works. When we come desperate to be healed, this is where it's found. So I'm grateful for Jesus, and I'm grateful for um, his attempting to explain it to us and to model it for us and to show us and to come all the way from heaven to earth to live our life so that he can sympathize with our weakness and show us that it works and what it can look like in our life. And I'm honored to get to stand before you each week and attempt to share with you what he shared. And I know I don't do it justice, but it's the greatest work in the world. And I'm grateful for it. So before we get into that, I just wanted to add my two cents about our Sunday evening or right in the middle of this, can we talk about this class? And the subject, this is our third iteration of this class, if you didn't know that, and the subject we are saying, yes, we can talk about it, uh, too, is, is women's role in the church. And so it's been spectacular so far, and not just the presentations, those have been edifying, but the rooms and the conversation has been rich and kind of uh, family-producing and and, and so that's been beautiful. And uh, I, I just really encourage you, if you haven't joined in with us on Sunday evenings, tonight's the night to do it. We are walking into uh, 1 Corinthians 14. And that is one of, two, one of the two passages in Scripture that have been historically utilized to dictate our practices about women's role in the church. And so this is going to be a good study, and it's an important study. So I hope you'll come tonight and then next week when we do the second of those two passages in First Timothy 2. You won't want to miss those for a variety of reasons. 
Uh, but one question that has been coming up that I've been asked to, by the leadership to address is, uh, after this study, how will the elders then decide what changes to make and where to implement those changes and when to implement those changes? And that's a, that's, they, they've been answering that, but they asked me to just, just say it to everyone. They will be making that decision in the same way they make all of their decisions based I mean, for our, on our behalf, and that is prayerfully and in community with each other. Okay, that's how, that's how they do it. And in community with you as well, obviously, because our shepherds, they smell like the sheep. They are with you. Most of you, I would doubt there's anyone in here that doesn't know an elder personally. If you don't, we want to remedy that. We want to remedy that. But uh, you are influencing those conversations, and they use a process called dynamic governance, and it's where... After prayer, they go around the circle and every single one of them share what God is, what they feel like God is putting on their heart concerning any decision and subject. And the rest of the group listens to each one as if they're listening for God through that. That's, that's their belief in a plurality of leadership that no one of them has the whole counsel of God, but all of them together are searching for it. And it's really a beautiful process. And then after that, someone tries to take in what everyone is saying and then make a proposal that fits what they feel like God is saying. And then they go around the room and they, everyone gives a thumbs up or a thumbs down. If any, any of them, even one, has a thumbs down, that is not like veto power, so we're not going to do anything. That's, we don't believe God's this God of inaction. You know, That is an invitation to keep listening, to keep dialoguing, to keep praying, and to figure out what is it in that brother or those people, those other elders that, that God's trying to shape the proposal into what it needs to be. And it, and then they say, it's a, it's a tedious process sometimes, but it's beautiful. It's like an act of worship. It's, it's like doing church business as worship. And it's a really beautiful thing, uh, to be a part of or to, uh, to witness. And so that is how that will go. Now, a few people have asked, are we going to have a congregational vote at the end of this? And no, we're not. We are, however, going to have a congregational survey. So this study, by the way, is one, you know, it's one part them wanting you to experience the impactful study that they have experienced now twice. That has brought them to the conclusion that as they study scripture, we and our practices in this area are not aligned with scripture. Okay, that, that was a conclusion they made 15 years ago and then four years ago. And, and so they want you to experience that study so that you can be in the word and test it as well. And they want to hear your responses. So it's one part you studying with them. It's another part them hearing and shepherding you, okay? And so that's one of the ways you're influencing. But we're also at the conclusion of this study in March, we will have a congregational survey just to see where the body's at. And that will have uh, some voice into their decision-making too. So that's how it's going to happen. And one more reminder here that's real important for your, of so many of you, for your hearts. They're not in a hurry. This is not like, there's no sense of urgency like that you need to be concerned about. We're not going to finish this study and boom, something's going to happen and you're going to just have to deal with it. They are, they're patient. Remember, they studied this 15 years ago and concluded that they are not practicing what the Bible allows and maybe even calls for. 15 years. And they decided it just wasn't the time. 
in their prayerful discerning, it wasn't the time to make any all church big decision. Okay, and then they were felt led by God to study it again four years ago. They concluded the same thing, except this time they feel like it is time to make a decision that takes ground in what their thinking expresses the kingdom according to scripture. They decided that four years ago. They are not in a hurry. They are patient. And that patience is because they want to be certain that they have God's will for us in this time and they want to shepherd you well. We have, I'm just thankful to you shepherds. Thank you for your diligence and your patience in, in, in this and in all things. That is typical of them. So that is uh, what I wanted to tell you on that. All right, so as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, as I said, we started in the Beatitudes, and I better get to it so I don't have you here all day, but we're in the third Beatitude, which says this in Matthew 5.5. 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This honestly might be the most difficult Beatitude to understand because of, well, in our current English vocabulary, we don't hardly even use the word meek. But it's not necessarily unfamiliar, but it, it doesn't mean to us in our modern usage of it what it meant to Matthew when he recorded it here, to Jesus when he said it. It, it doesn't mean that. So we struggle with what to picture is this privileged life, okay? To be meek is a privileged way of life, but it's a, it's a fortunate way. You're, it's a blessed way of life, but we don't have a good picture of what meek Means And if we have one, it's not very good. And then the second part of that, if you are meek, the, bless, the reason it's a blessing is because you inherit the earth. And most of us in our Christian understanding, we're like, wait, I'm not, I don't want the earth, right? Just in our typical, we want heaven. We want, we want the reward of heaven. So even the reward doesn't sound like something that we typically elevate as something that we're wanting. And so this is packed with blessing, but we have to unpack what it means in order to appreciate it. So let me quickly deal with the second question of what does it mean when he says we're going to inherit the earth? So this entire beatitude is Jesus reformulating a psalm, Psalm 37, where the phrase inherit the land is used like five times. And similar expressions are used even more than that. But inherit the land is used five times, most directly in verse 11 of chapter 37, where he even uses meek. The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. So in Psalm 37, the land is understood as the promised land, literally located in Palestine for the Jews. That, that was what they would picture, this promise of land. To them, that is a high esteem. If God gives you a home and a place and a land of your own, that is, was a huge blessing, and that's what they had connected to all the way from Exodus when they were delivered from slavery and delivered to the promised land. And so uh, in Matthew, scholars tell me that it's being used as a promise of participating in the new earth. It, it doesn't say land. It uses earth, and this is the promise of of those that will follow Jesus, including the Jews, but those that will come in with Jesus get the promise of participation in the new earth. You've heard the phrase in scripture, new heavens and new earth. We usually just picture heaven, 
but there's strong theology that suggests that we don't go to heaven, but that heaven descends to us here. And so it's the, whatever it is, it's the new heavens and the new earth. So the promise is the meek are the ones that inherit heaven. They, they get the inheritance of Jesus. And so it's, it's as high of a blessing as you can actually get. And that's why the meek are blessed or they're privileged. So that leaves us then with what does meek mean. I want to try to unpack it with you to where it means something to you. So let me start by telling you what it doesn't mean. Every preacher I've ever heard preach on this, and I've heard a bunch, they start with what it doesn't mean. Meek does not mean weak. That's some, or any version of weak or inappropriate passivity or, or to be a pushover or a doormat or a wimp. It doesn't mean spinelessness. You know, that person's really meek. We don't use that in a positive way. It, but it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean someone who's just, you know, subservient to everyone and everything all the time. It doesn't mean that. So there's a couple of characters. The way we can really know this, there's two characters in Scripture that are called meek. Okay, they're set up. And it's the two heroes, the hero of the Old Testament narrative and the hero of the New Testament narrative. We know the hero of the New Testament narrative is Jesus, and that's found in Matthew 11. It's the one place, verse 29, where Jesus opens up his heart and tells us what's in there. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. It's often translated gentle, and that is a big part of meekness, is gentle, but it's not enough. It's not enough. We're, we're t- we tend to think of gentle as weak as well, but it's not. And, and we'll see that here in a minute. So if Jesus is none of those other words, he's not inappropriately passive. He's not, you know, a, a, a doormat. I mean, he cannot be seen as that in any way. So we know it doesn't mean that. Now the hero of the Old Testament, the other person that's called meek is Moses. And I say him le- second because of how he's described in Numbers. It just doesn't ring like a, a right sentence. But it says in verse 3, Now Moses was a very meek man, more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. See, that just doesn't sound like a compliment. You know, it's like we expect Moses was a very athletic man. He's more athletic than anybody. Moses is a great man. He was greater than anyone. That seems to fit the tenor of that sentence. But meek? Moses was a meek man, more meek than anyone. So we know Moses was not weak by any means. He was courageous. He operated in the world different than everyone else. Like he's hearing some other voice than everyone else in the world and operating on that. It made him look crazy. Jesus too. Even Jesus' family thought Jesus was crazy because it's like he was tuned in to some other way of living and was operating on that. That comes close to begin. That begins to help us understand what meek means. But you're going to need to shift gears emotionally. You're going to need to allow meek to become something strong, something virtuous, something worthwhile, something anyone who's going to be considered great from a kingdom perspective has to be this. You've got to start thinking like that. You have to start desiring to be meek. You need to give yourself permission to let this definition come into you so that you will not resist being meek, but you'll lean into it. The Greek word for meek is praus. 
And it's one of the great, it was a great, even in, take it out of the New Testament, it was a great Greek ethical word. It was a quality that was seen with esteem. According to William Barclay, he says there's like three uses of meek in the Greek. And the first one he pointed out is Aristotle, who was famous for defining virtues by naming the extremes on each side and then saying, it's not this, it's not this, it's, it's the right amount of both. And so for meekness, he said it's a character trait between excessive anger, like excessive and inappropriate anger, and then excessive and inappropriate angerlessness. Like not enough fire, not enough. That's, the, that's what we think of as meek, just push over, you know, not rileable. But it's not rileable either. It's this place right in between that it's probably not a compromise between the two. It is 100% of the dose, of the appropriate dose of both. Meek. It's someone who never mindlessly reacts with anger, but never underreacts when things are wrong. It's a person who's always angry at the right time, is never angry at the wrong time, and the actions that come out of him or her in that anger is always appropriate and productive. So in my mind, I think it's right to say someone who never gets angry, this would be an application of it. When they are insulted, when they are wronged, that, but when someone else is insulted, when someone else is wronged, they do. That's kind of my, one of my applications of that one. Another usage of this word prowse was in juxtaposition against the opposite, which was uh, arrogance, the word for arrogance. It's um, lofty heartedness was one of the words that's used. Just this, I'm something, I matter, I have rights, I'm entitled. So humble would be appropriate there. But again, I want to be careful because sometimes We don't even use the word humble in a positive view and it lacks the strength that's theirs. But it's important to point out the meek person has an accurate and appropriate view of themselves in light of God. They have an accurate view of themselves in light of God. Whatever they have in terms of power or ability or authority, they know who runs things. Ultimately, And so there's this appropriateness, this humility. In, in every circumstance, they know where the power lies. And then finally, probably the most common one, and I love that this is the most common one, is when a wild animal is tamed. We use, preachers usually use wild stallions, horses or whatever. That they, you know, they're, they're just these strong beasts, right? But when they are tamed, all of that strength is submitted to another authority. All of that strength is taken. Not one bit of the wild horse's strength is gone. None of it. He's not weakened at all. It's just submitted to service of another. You feeling me here? This is meekness, is strength surrendered to God. It's not weak. It, it, it maybe it's just not dangerous. No, you, you can't even say it's not dangerous. It's dangerous 
It's just good now. It's good. It, it's used for good. So if you take all three of those, I'm trying my best here to pack meek against all of our culture with, with, with these positive attributes that you go, okay, okay, I get it. It's something good. In a nutshell, the meek have renounced now biblically they have renounced the typical way in which human beings in the earth go about utilizing power. They've renounced that. And they do not fret when they don't have any power in the typical way because that's not what they're depending on anyway. It's a strong position. Whatever's normal, whatever's expected in the world when you wield any kind of authority or you're going to react to any kind of injustice or anything that happens to you or in the world, whatever's normal, meek is not that. It's different. It's altogether different. It's like connected to some other source like Jesus and Moses. It's like the meek person hears another voice and just with strength and confidence has surrendered to whatever that voice is, to whatever that rule is, to whatever that way is, that kingdom is and operates like that so they stick out because they're just not normal they're just not normal whatever's normal and expected by all other human beings on the planet and i mean normal not condemnable not even evil just normal not so with the meek instead they operate in some other way because they've surrendered their strength to be used by God to advance his kingdom in his ways. The way one commentator might interpret this beatitude is, blessed are those with the God-surrendered life and uses all that they are and all that they have to demonstrate and offer the kingdom, no matter how much of it they have or how little a strong position, meek. And kingdom citizens are meek. Meek may be the word that's just not popular enough for us to adopt it all the time, but it may be the word that describes what Jesus means when he's doing that last prayer in John that his disciples are in the world, but not of it. There they are. Here we are, church. We are in this world, but You don't look like it. It's how you go through life. You don't, you don't look like it. There's an instead. In Matthew 20, Jesus kind of appeals to this, maybe in a way we can grasp. He's talking to his disciples. A couple of the disciples' mom had asked Jesus, hey, when you get to your kingdom, would you take my two sons and put them on your right, your left? You know, just can they rule right next to you? And even the other disciples heard that these two preemptively asked for that. And they're mad. You know, they didn't think to ask that or they weren't bold enough to ask that yet. So there's this thing going on. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and go, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. Here's what he says. He goes, you know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And then he appeals. He appeals to his own nature to explain it. What he's already trying to get them ready for and what being meek looks like. He says, just as the son of man, the strongest person these guys have ever met in some different way. This is the strongest man they have ever met. And he says, just as the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve. He doesn't stop there. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what meek looks like. That's what authority looks like if you're going to sit at my right and left. Do you even know what you're asking? There's a way that it's done. That's what y'all have in your head. I don't begrudge you that. That is, that, is, that is how we have been taught in this world. Not so with you. Instead, in the place of that, he was altogether different, Jesus was. And he was and is calling for something altogether different, something otherworldly, something not just countercultural, but illogical, like ridiculous. It's what makes kingdom people stand out. They don't deal with death the same, they don't deal with anything in life the same. It's uh, a story, this took me back to a story that where I got to see meekness. It was a pretty powerful story. This is probably 10 years ago. I don't know how long ago, but it was on one of my sabbaticals. And some of you may or may not know, I always try to find a mentor of some kind to spend three days with. And I know it was at least 10, 10 years ago because I was going to Houston and I was going with my buddy, Jim, who's just got a very Christ-like life. And I can call him up and say, hey, Jim, this, could I come and just ride around with you in your life for three days? And he's got the kind of life where he can just say, yeah, and expects that's from God. And he, I just join right in. And he just goes from person to person, relationship to relationship, helping them bring the kingdom in their life. It, an amazing life. I want a life like that. It's a very Christ-like life in my mind. But I asked him if I could do that, and I, I got to go. And so on one day, we're going, so I'm just getting in the car with him and going, and, and we're headed to a, a restaurant with a couple of men, he says, and he just gave me a little background. Uh, we're going to meet with a guy named Jason, he said. And Jason ha- is this, he's probably in it, he was older than me at the time, but he was, in, you know, he's like in his older 40s maybe, and, and he's got a great life. Christian, strong, Christian, loves Jesus, but a typical American Christian life where he's good and he's, he's got a great wife and wonderful children and, and uh, is giving. He's real successful, been blessed and successful in his business. He's made a lot of money in his company that he's the boss of and um, has people under him, you know, that he's an authority over and just a great guy. But he had met Jim months before and had asked Jim that I want you to help me in however much I need to turn all that in for Christ's life. Okay, okay, so now, in the meantime, he tells, Jim tells me, there's this employee of his named Leslie. Leslie's in his early 60s, an older gentleman, works for him, is a steward of, 
uh, is a pretty entrusted steward because this guy, Leslie, he tells me, who's going to be at this table that we're going to, had embezzled money from Jason's company. Over a million dollars over time. And so when this happened, Jason told Jim and said, I want to offer Leslie the same grace that God has offered me. Jim, do you know what you're asking, Jason? Do you know what you're asking? Do you know what God has given you? Do you know what it cost God to give you what he's given you? And you're asking to now in turn give that to Leslie? Do you understand what this is going to cost you to attempt to do that? What it's going to mean for you? And Jason, you know, listening to Jim, and he's like, the internal work you're going to have to do in order to offer this to this broken man who has wronged you? Do you know what it's going to And he goes, with fear and trembling, no, but it's what I want. And so that's, what, that's the table I'm going to. So I get there, and, and Jason's already there, and we're sitting at the table, and I meet Jason, and we connect, and he's, he's just a, such a great guy, just really connecting with him, and, and then Leslie shows up, and Leslie comes and joins, and I, just, I don't know how to describe Leslie. He just looks like this man that uh, is, is scared but trying to be confident and uh, like, I mean, he's in, he's in such a vulnerable position, and so he sits down at this table and I am I, I am amazed at what I get to see for this next hour Jason was there fighting there was a fight going on at this table there's Jason fighting within himself and then fighting Leslie against Leslie for Leslie for him to receive this ridiculous grace that he's giving him. We're talking forgiveness of the debt, stay in his job. And, he, and he's fighting to give it. And he's fighting to not react to Leslie's reactions and, and fighting to stay in it. Leslie is sitting there fighting to receive this, to, to try to get his mind around this, to try to, I mean, he's got to be in the twilight zone. He's sitting with his boss who has the right and the evidence to put him in jail. And most Christians, including me sitting there, would think that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But he's not wanting to put him in jail. And watching Leslie, this is, was most difficult on him. Over and over, I could see him. He would, he would put on his mask. He's got a long, well-rehearsed, practiced coping mechanism for trouble. And that would come back on. But like with x-ray vision, Jim can see it. Hey, Leslie, take that off. There's no need for that. Leslie, that is going to deny you what's being offered. And so he's just stuck, vulnerable. He's seen. And I'm watching him go back and forth. It would be so much easier for him to go, one coping mechanism, I can't believe I struck gold with this sucker. And so I'm going to, I'm going to, 
do what I do, fake contrition, and, and he's good at it, and it doesn't look fake, and, and just receive it and get out of this and, and survive another day. That's on one side, but when that's called out by both these men, he jumped. He's on the razor's edge of jumping up and going, what, are, what, what kind of trick is it? What are y'all doing? Look, I'm out of here. Just throw me in jail. It's what I deserve. I'm telling you, sitting there in this, that would have been easier than what he was sitting there enduring and fighting to receive. Because if he received it, it's gonna like change everything. And Jason, I mean, He's, he's trying to not, not just, he's not just not going to put him in jail. I mean, to me, it's still grace if he just fires him. But I'm not going to pursue legal charges. But he's not going to do that. He wants to keep him employed. And, and then as we're going, I'm realizing, I mean, it seems like wise even to at least put Leslie, if you're going to keep him hired, into a role where he's not in danger of his brokenness, again, hurting the company and hurting others. Because he hurt a bunch of people, not just Jason. But he's not doing that too. He's, he's going all the way. I want to restore you as a different man. Jason's a freak, right? And it hit me while I was sitting there. I'm reliving it now. I remember thinking, there's like, I'm sitting at this table watching all this happen. I'm going... There's not another table on the entire planet Earth that is doing what I'm sitting here watching happen right here. I guarantee you, this, this, this is so rare. And so anyway, they, they finish this episode. This isn't their first time to do this, and it won't be their last. But I got to, to be there for it. And I, I don't remember if it was Jim or Jason, but we're wrapping up, and they just turned, Brian, Brian, you've, you've been here. Do you just have any thoughts? And this thing welled up in me. I wasn't expecting that, but it just welled up in me, and I go, Yes. I looked at Leslie. And Leslie has adult, two adult sons. I said, Leslie, hear me. You are my dad. Some of you know my story. My dad embezzled money. He did go to prison. I said, you're my dad. And, and my dad, this man, Leslie, he's not a Christian. My dad was part of a church. You're my dad, Jason, as his son, with all my heart. Thank you for what you're trying to give to him. With all my heart. He may not receive it. He may walk away from this. He might abuse it. Thank you for what you're trying to give to him. As his son, thank you. I will never be able to repay you for what you're attempting to do. And Leslie, as your son, thank you for not leaving this table. I've seen you. you, I've seen you want to run or change or act. And I see you. I see you working hard to really believe that this is real. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials, they exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your, and he uses a provocative word here, slave. Slave, you must be a slave to something other than normal, to something different than reasonable and expected, even defendable, even for Christians. You must be a slave to something, to someone else. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the hospital yesterday, there was this group of people handling death. Different. It was meek. It wasn't afraid. It was humble. But it was strong. And I watched this dying man's wife sing things that aren't reasonable to be singing at this moment. It's different. It's like she hears, she's connected, even in the midst of this dire, maybe one of the most dire moments of her life, she's connected to some other voice, some other thing that's ruling, that's reigning in that moment, and she's a freak. That's the church. That's the church. When I thanked Jason for what he was offering to Leslie, I was thanking him for being meek. More meek than anyone I've ever witnessed face to face to that point. Let me ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses. They're going to move around this room just in case you're moved and you need a touch today. They are eager to do that with you. Matthew Henry, here's a comment he made. He said, they are the meek who are rarely and hardly provoked, but quickly and easily pacified. Who would rather forgive 20 injuries than revenge one, having the rule of their own spirits text from Paul really captures the work of being meek. If you want to try this, if you want to ruin your life, if you want to ruin your life, such as it is, and exchange it for the Christ-like life, this is a pretty good guide from Paul in Ephesians on becoming meek. It's Ephesians 4. You mark this in your Bible. This is, this is good, hard work, but good work. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Brawling, and slander, along with malice, but not just malice, every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. It's a strong move. It's not weak. It's gentle. It's not weak. Kindness. You walk into this world with kindness, with compassion for one another, forgiving Forgiving each other. Why? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Church, how has God in Christ forgiven you? Just go do that.
Just go do that. Do that today in your house with your kids, with your spouse. Do that tomorrow at work. Do that in the restaurant. Do that in the car. Do that in your small groups. Do that with each other. Do that tonight when we gather together over a hard tech. Do that and you'll be meek and the earth is yours. The earth is yours. If you need this grace, God's fought way harder than Jason was fighting for Leslie, for you. If you need to know it, if you need to receive it, you come get it. And on the flip side, if you have that grace and you need to learn to engage in it and offer it to the world, we want to walk with you in that as we strive to do that together. We'll need his spirit. We'll need his spirit. So let's stand and let's ask for it.